Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ana Lucia Araujo, professor of history at Howard University. We're discussing her new book, The Gift, How Objects of Prestige Shaped the Atlantic Slave Trade and Colonialism. Anna follows the journey of an 18th century ceremonial silver sword that tell the story of the French trade in enslaved people in West and West Central Africa. A micro history with an awareness of global currents, The Gift offers greater insight into the brutal and dehumanizing processes of the Atlantic slave trade and colonialism in Africa. Anna, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Khalid. Of course. You know, this this book is is really fascinating on a couple of levels. You know, micro histories I always find interesting, especially micro histories that take broader context uh, into perspective. You know, I, I like to think about it. It's almost like um, you know, with physics, how there's the focus on mm-hmm. on the very micro you know, quantum level, and then also the the broad, broader, you know, the universe, you know, the universe uh, at, at large. Uh, and I always think that going from the very small to the large is, is a very valuable way to think because we kind of, as humans, exist somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before talking about the book, I was just wondering if you just tell us a little about yourself and your background. Yes, then um, my background, I uh, I am a historian, then a historian who focuses on the Atlantic slave trade and its slavery. I was trained as a historian uh, in Brazil, uh, in Canada, and also in France. And I also, then I have a PhD in history, but I also had a previous PhD in art history. Then this kind of work that I am doing in this book is uh, the kind of work that allows me to um, then to to draw on my my two specialties, then my two disciplines, then the, that I was trained as uh, then art historian and also uh, as uh, a historian, and I have been teaching at Howard University for about uh, fifteen years. Then the, the the work that I do is mainly then on the the history of uh, slavery and the Atlantic slave trade, with uh, a particular focus on. West Africa in Brazil initially, and then uh, now I am doing much more comparative work, uh, always with a focus on visual culture and also on how slavery is memorialized uh, in the public space and also in museums uh, as well. So for this particular book, what, what was the the inspiration? Was there a moment when you knew that you, you had a the idea for the book that sort of started to come together? Uh, yes. 
Then uh, this book, the way it, it was born, is is interesting. Then in, by 2007, when I finished this uh, second PhD in history, it was a moment when in France, uh, in Paris, uh, just one year before then in 2006, uh, there was the Quai Brandy Museum that was um, unveiled uh, at the time. And uh, I had a project at that point of uh, looking at uh, the demands of restitution of uh, African heritage to uh, Western museums. Because when the museum Cape was created, uh, then there was uh, this public debate in French newspapers about uh, the, the restitution, because these are museums that uh, then gather and um, display then uh, a large number of uh, objects uh, and artworks that were indeed brought during the period of uh, co French colonial rule and European colonial rule in general in uh, the African continent. And I had this project uh, as, uh, as a postdoc, which indeed it ended up, uh, I received uh, funding for that, but uh, I just used for about six months and not for the entire two years because I had, I got this job at Howard. Then when I moved to Howard, uh, then, of course, in a tenure track position, I had then to work uh, to publish my um, uh, my first book, which was based on the, the second uh, dissertation that I wrote. Then I, I abandoned that uh, postdoc project at that point. At some point in by 2015, I started writing a book on the demands of reparations for slavery. And that is another story, uh, but uh, the book was published in 2017. And when I uh, published that book, I told to myself, well, uh, perhaps now it would be uh, the time to write a book about the demands of a restitution of African heritage, then to take that back that, uh, uh, that project of um, then almost a decade uh, before. And I started doing that work. Then I did research uh, in Portugal, did research in Belgium uh, and in France in particular, did also some research here in the United States at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, and then um, my goal was really to, to look at the, the lists and objects, uh, African objects that these museums had and to see uh, how to address the uh, then to see if I was able to find then or to dress a sort of general history of the demands of restitution of African heritage. When I was in the process of then looking at different objects and uh, then possibly then demands of restitution, uh, a colleague who works at the, um, the, the Cape Henry Museum then as a, a curator there, she um, showed me the object that is on the cover of uh, my book. Indeed, this object was in her dissertation that she uh, defended in 2015, but she put the object uh, in the annexes of her uh, dissertation, and it was just a, a, a picture of the object. She didn't analyze because this object emerged by 2015 in, in an auction. And uh, the, the object has an inscription, and she saw the, the, then the, there was the, 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 the term cabinda, that is uh, then, a, then uh, a port in West Central Africa, and it was colonized then in the 19th century, then 
the Portuguese took over this region. And then she associated Cabinda with uh, people who speak Portuguese and me being Brazilian as a person who could uh, perhaps uh, elucidate the story of, uh, of this sort. And uh, I started digging that story and I had done uh, already uh, work uh, on the, the French presence in Brazil, also uh, then uh, the, the French presence, French colonization in the Bight of Benin, in what is present-day Republic of Benin. And I started, I, I decided to only work that there was an interesting story about this object that led me to uh, restrict my my interest and uh, look at only at this object instead of working with the large demands of restitution. Also because the, the story of the object itself challenges uh, all the problems of uh, demands of restitution of African heritage because uh, it's an object that it was fabricated in France but was sent to West Central Africa and it was looted uh, about two times before it, it ended up uh, then uh, in where it is today in a, in a French museum in La Rochelle. So, you know, I, I think uh, it, we'll, we'll definitely get to talking more about uh, this sword and it's, it's really bizarre, fascinating journey that you track. Uh, but just sort of starting from, from a, a basic level, uh, you know, I, I think everyone has, has some, cursory understanding of the Atlantic slave trade. But I, I think it's uh, it's valuable to to think to, you know, just start a little bit with the origins to understand how the French uh, ended up getting involved. So w would you mind talking a little bit the first chapter where you look at the origins of the Atlantic slave trade, particularly on the Loango coast where you focus uh, and, and how the slave trade began in this region? Yes, then uh, the of of course that the, the, there was a slave trade that existed internally in the in the African continent before the the arrival of uh, of the Europeans. Uh, also, there were there was an internal trade uh, of uh, ivory and uh, uh, iron and other items in this this region as well as it happened uh, across the African continent. Then uh, the, the African continent was uh, connected to the world already at the moment when the, the Atlantic slave trade emerged. But in this region, that is the, the, the Luangu coast that covers uh, part of what is present-day Angola and part of what is uh, present-day uh, Congo, this region is the region north uh, of the, the Congo River. And uh, the first Europeans to reach this region in the late um, 15th century are the, the Portuguese, the Portuguese that pretty much initiated the Atlantic slave trade along the coasts of West Central Africa and West Africa. Uh, they were also the first to arrive in this region. Then they were present in this region since the late 15th century. But um, they, they established then um, uh, settlements, uh, permanent settlements south of the Congo River in the two areas that became, uh, let's say this way, simplifying, two areas that became the, 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 the two main slave trading ports in this region. Uh, then during the era of the Atlantic slave trade, the, the sports are Luanda and Benguela, then south of the Congo River. But the Portuguese, they they, they had an eye at least on the, the Luango coast for a while. 
And uh, with their arrival and the competition that was going on between the Portuguese and other European powers, especially the, um, the Dutch, the Dutch started also trading in this region, uh, then uh, not purchasing enslaved people at this point. They were trading in textiles, they were trading in uh, iron as well. But with the development of uh, the Americas and a plantation economy uh, in the, the Americas, and with the fact that the Dutch will also get their slice uh, in the Americas, then in the region of the, the Caribbean, they started gradually uh, then this sort of uh, shift from these first commodities that they were trading in the region and started then purchasing uh, enslaved Africans to uh, be sold uh, in the Americas. Then this is how the slave trade uh, emerges, in this, uh, emerges in this region, pretty much as it happened uh, in other areas of West Africa and West Central Africa. But here it's important for us to have in mind that uh, north of the, the Luangu coast by then the, the 17th century, which is the period when the Atlantic slave trade launches in the region, we are going to have three main states, three main kingdoms, that these were centralized uh, states, they, they were structured uh, societies, then the, these were not uh, decentralized or stateless uh, communities. They had Three kingdoms, then the kingdom of Luangu, kingdom of uh, Kakongu, and kingdom of Ngoyu, which is this last one. Ngoyu is the, the kingdom that I look at because each of them had um, uh, ports that were then seaports. And it's in, this, uh, in these areas, then the, 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 the coastal areas where the, the trade with uh, Europeans will take place. And of course, for that to, ha to happen, and as you are referring here to, to organize the states, we have, of course, uh, these are monarchies, then we have noblemen, we have enslaved people, we have commoners, and uh, the noblemen, uh, of course, include uh, a king, but the king also has a, a different officers, the people who occupy different offices, uh, representing the king at different levels. And these include, of course, uh, people who were in contact with the, the Europeans. Then this contact in the beginning is a contact uh, to trade different kinds of uh, commodities, but with the rise of the Atlantic slave trade, these uh, middlemen or intermediaries, they become uh, those who are... Uh, trading in people then who are getting the captives uh, from the interior mainly um, and uh, offering these captives then to um, to the European traders who get in the region. Then the first are the Portuguese that are there, but uh, in the, the very beginning, the late 15th century, but the Dutch, we start this trade, then we start trading in people. And gradually, you are going to see other European powers arriving in the region. Then the French, uh, the English, uh, and then the, the, the British will get there as well. And then uh, 
the Portuguese, uh, eventually even the Brazilians, then Brazilian-born slave traders will get uh, to this to this region, and this later on uh, in the the nineteenth century, which is not really a period that um, I really cover in the book. The book is most centered on the on the eighteenth century, at least in that area of the Luango coast. You, you briefly mentioned the um, the role of the the. The, the sort of the uh, the middleman who's responsible for uh, in getting the enslaved people and then and then trading them uh, the mafuka. What, can you tell me a little bit about this this role? Um, you know how they participated in the slave trade. What type of person occupied it? Their responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, this is a a great question. Then in 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 different ports uh, along the African coasts, there were this. Uh, in intermediaries, and there were more than uh, one of them. Uh, but the, the Mufuka is an individual that was described by the, the European, because the part of the work that we do here is based uh, a lot on European accounts. Uh, then, uh, and of course, sometimes you have to be uh, careful with uh, this kind of source. But in the Dutch sources, uh, then uh, French sources, Portuguese sources, British sources, the Mufuka appears as an office occupied by the man who is a, not a noble. He is a, a commoner and it's a, a man. Then it's not, these are offices occupied by, by males. And is a man then who lives uh, on the coast and who is uh, in charge. He is described as being the minister of commerce then uh, by, the, by the Europeans. Then he is uh, in charge of everything related to trade. Uh, trade in the beginning, not the trading people, but then a trade uh, in enslaved people. And then he would play this role of uh, receiving then uh, then ship captains who arrived on the coast, uh, allowing them to establish themselves with temporary uh, structures uh, on the coast. Uh, then uh, they would uh, this man would receive tributes from from European uh, traders who arrived on the coast. Then these tributes were usually uh, items that were used uh, as currencies to purchase enslaved people. Then I am referring here, for example, to textiles, to alcohol, uh, to iron bars, to uh, even weapons at at at, at some point. But in addition to these tributes, these, um, these individuals who are the Mufuka and these intermediaries, they started also uh, accepting what we can call uh, gifts. Then the gifts, the, the, the category of the gift is uh, a tricky one because uh, it refers at the same time to these tributes that were customary along the African coasts but also include other uh, uh, items that were um, then fancy items that sometimes were made of precious metals, uh, uh, precious uh, then or hair, uh, textiles. And in some cases, they were fabricated only to be, uh, to be offered to these individuals. As the Atlantic slave trade started developing, uh, intensifying, especially in the 18th century, these individuals that are called the Mufuka, uh, then there was then more than one in these different kingdoms, uh, but um, the Mufuka becomes an individual that becomes wealthier 
uh, with the intensification of the trade because he could accept the, he the, he was in contact with the um, with the Europeans he could accept these gifts he could uh, accumulate this wealth which the king who lived in the interior could not then the king especially in the case of Ngoyu is described as an individual who uh, could not uh, that had a sacred role he could not uh, uh, be seen uh, eating, for example, and he could not accept uh, these um, European gifts. Then, as the trade intensifies, these kings are more and more alienated in detriment of these individuals who were commoners and who lived along the coast and who were, to some extent, um, corrupted by the, the trade, uh, this lucrative uh, trade in people. So you know, much of the focus of this book is on the, the, the French uh, relation involvement, because this this sword that you look at, this, this particular gift that is central to the book, um, was was a gift from, from French uh, traders. So would you give a little background on how the French first got involved in the slave trade in this region? Yes, like uh, the the French, then they uh, is, they started then uh, already then in the um, then by I would say that already by the late then there were some French voyages to African coasts uh, then in the late sixteenth century, then um, but this the, the French then came mainly during the 17th century to the region that is the Bight of Benin. Then they, they, they were trading, then purchasing people to transport them to, to the Caribbean at this point. Then they joined the, the trade uh, in Africans as all the other uh, European uh, powers did uh, in order to supply uh, then their colonies in the Americas with um, then uh, with an enslaved workforce that was basically replacing gradually replacing then uh, the enslaved indigenous populations in the Americas. Then the French they were based mostly on West Africa. Then in the region where is uh, present day uh, Senegal. They were also present in the region of the Bight of Benin, but they were able also to expand up to West Central Africa in the region that is uh, the north of the, the Congo River. Uh, then they were not uh, present in the regions that were controlled by the Portuguese, that was one in Benguela, south of the Congo River, but they were able to, to trade on the Luango coast because this was a zone where uh, no European power uh, took over, then there were just several European powers trading in these areas, which is a characteristic uh, that we do not see south of the Congo River, where the Portuguese had the, the control. Here, no European power had the control. All of them were trading uh, in enslaved Africans. They were uh, competing among themselves and sometimes even nationals from the same kingdom, which is it was the case of France, they were competing among themselves to uh, to to see who were were those who would get the best captives and more captives uh, for the the best prices. But uh, also they could not establish, for example, any permanent um, uh, 
um, structure in this area north of the Congo River. For example, if you take the example of uh, Ghana, present-day Ghana, or even the region of the Bight of Benin, the European powers, they were able to, to construct, for example, fortress, uh, forts uh, in general, even castles. In this area, they couldn't do that. But the, the, the French uh, then found in this in this zone uh, then uh, uh, a rich market then where they could purchase enslaved people and where no European power had a control in order to export them, uh, especially uh, to the colony uh, at the time, the French colony of Saint-Domingue that became then uh, Haiti in uh, 1804. Then this is how the, the, the French joined uh, this uh, trade in enslaved Africans in this area. Another uh, a key place in the French trade was the city of, of La Rochelle. Um, what, what did this this how did this city function as a as a kind of a, a focal point of the of the slave trade? Yeah, then this is a um, uh, it's a, an important question because La Rochelle is the second. Uh, then overall, during the entire period of the Atlantic slave trade, if you take the number of captives, uh, the number of voyages that left from La Rochelle. Um, to the, the African coasts, uh, La Rochelle was the second busiest or most important uh, French slave trading port. This is just after, second to Nantes, which is the first slave trading port. Then La Rochelle is uh, a city that is based on the, the northwest area of uh, France. Then uh, with uh, then easy access to 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 the uh, to the um, uh, Atlantic Ocean. Then the city became then the second uh, slave trading port. Then we calculate today. Historians estimate that uh, more than one hundred sixty six thousand voyages uh, to the uh, Atlantic coasts of Africa uh, were uh, departed then from from the the, the port of La Rochelle. Uh, after that, of course, the first uh, slave trading port is Nantes. Nantes also sent, uh, Nantes traders also sent uh, then uh, voyages and slave ships to the area of the Luango coast. Uh, and in the case of Nantes, you are referring to about half a million enslaved Africans uh, that were transported to the Americas through these voyages organized in the, the port of Nantes. Then uh, La Rochelle was, of course, uh, uh, a, a small uh, city back in the time, uh, but uh, most uh, that an important part of the, the economy in La Rochelle was around then uh, the Atlantic slave trade, uh, then mayors, for example, of the city, as we can find perhaps in other slave trading ports, such as Liverpool, uh, were involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, then the, the, the wealthy individuals in the city, they were uh, traders who were transporting, then were sending ships to the Caribbean uh, to bring uh, commodities to different commodities to, to La Rochelle, but they were also sending uh, sometimes the same ships in other voyages to the Atlantic coasts of Africa in order to provide enslaved Africans uh, then uh, to 
to the, the Caribbean. Then not only in La Rochelle, we have these individuals who are politicians then who had political power locally, and these were entire families. Then men, uh, brothers, uh, they would, this, this families, they would intermarry, then families involved in the Atlantic slave trade, and they would also uh, own uh, plantations uh, in the, the, the Caribbean, especially in Saint-Domingue. Some of them, they established companies, they would have representatives in Saint-Domingue. Then here we have that idea of the triangle, um, the, the triangular trade to some extent, and uh, these men in La Rochelle, uh, most of them were Protestants uh, at the time. Uh, they uh, they were pretty much involved uh, in this trade in uh, enslaved people and people around them, because we think in terms of the those who are the owners of the plantations. We think in terms of those who are the owners of the slave ships. Uh, and who organized these expeditions uh, to Africa. But around them, there were sailors, they, there, there were uh, ship uh, surgeons, uh, there, there were ship captains who also became wealthy in this process of participation in the Atlantic slave trade. Then there was the entire city that, to some extent, supported the, uh, the, this trade as we see perhaps in other parts of the Americas, in Rhode Island here in the United States, or we see also in Liverpool, in Bristol, and um, then, or even in Amsterdam. You focus on on some of the, the individuals involved, um, important, you know, ship owners and captains um, that were that were involved in in the trade. Uh, can, can you tell me about these these individuals uh, and and what they the, the sort of the role they play in the story, broader story that you tell in this book? Well, uh, they, they they play an important role because uh, then to then we have several levels of actors. Then, for example, uh, there is one family, the Garrichet family, that is the the ship owner that sends this uh, the 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 two slave vessels to to La Rochelle that are. Um, a, a, that make a, a great part of the story in the book. Um, uh, the Garrache family, for example, then several uh, they for several generations they were involved in the the Atlantic slave trade as ship owners. Then, uh, yeah, and we, we needed to have a lot of money then to own uh, slave ships. Uh, they also had people, of course, who were um, the owners of enslaved people. Uh, as well, then in the Caribbean, and uh, they own plantations. Uh, in addition to that, then these are uh, this is one level of this participation in the Atlantic slave trade. Garrichet himself, as far as I know, he he, he hasn't been uh, to Africa, uh, but uh, just below him, they had to hire then uh, ship captains to lead these expeditions. And these should be men who were men of their trust, uh, because the ship captains they uh, they had a, the latitude to make a number of decisions during these uh, slave voyages, including even the place where, uh, of course, the the ship was when the ship was outfitted, it was supposed to go to a particular area in uh, West Africa or West Central Africa. But once there, 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 was, there was some latitude or where to, 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 to anchor, 
where to send uh, other boats to purchase enslaved Africans. Then the ship captains were very important as well. Um, and some of them, they became very rich, uh, which is the case of one of the ship captains that I uh, explore in the book, that is uh, Jean-Amable uh, Lesson. Then, and these were men who made several uh, voyages to the, the coasts of Africa. Then they would spend several months on the African coasts in which they would know the local actors, including these intermediaries such as the, the Mufuka. Then they are, the, the ship captains, they are at the highest uh, hang uh, in the, the slave ship. But these are men who go to Africa several times, unlike these uh, ship owners who uh, stay uh, then uh, in Europe. Of course, that at some point, these ship captains, they purchase uh, and, uh, slave ships as well. At some point, they purchase plantations in the Caribbean. Then, in other words, they become wealthy, very wealthy men. But below them, there are other individuals that are important. Of course, the different uh, members of the crew. Uh, but, for example, there are uh, ship surgeons who are then the, the medical doctors of sorts uh, back in the time. Uh, then they these were individuals who are trained to then to 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 deal with the different dimensions of uh healthy issues that could uh, happen in the during the voyages either the, re related to the crew or uh, the enslaved people who were would be embarked in these uh, slave ships then all these individuals were coming from the same regions if not from the city itself but from the neighboring areas uh, they know they knew each other they married um, then people that they knew and that were also part of this um, of this trade which make makes this their community to some extent very small because they knew each other on the other hand some of them they were traveling very far and having a real contact with uh, African communities, uh, at least along the coast where they uh, were uh, based for a number of months. You discuss how part of this, you know, the, crucial to this contact is this relationship with the Mufuka. Um, so, you know, looking at the, the ceremonial sword that, you know, first really inspired this, this project, uh, could you talk about this sword you know why it was created who it was given to uh really what it's what its general purpose was yes and the, the ceremonial sword is is a gift then the, of course you could discuss here for a very long time then i hope that you read the book to to then the, that uh, people who are listening to us that they read the book uh, to know more but the sword is a gift that is given to this mufuka uh, by uh, the, this uh, French slave traders that reached the region in first time 1775 and uh, following a conflict with other slave traders, French slave traders as well, uh, they want to uh, thank the, the Mufuka who basically saved the lives of um, then of, of a captain and some members of the um, of the crew. And then they commissioned this uh, sword that is a silver sword. 
and uh, the Silver Sword has a dedication. If you look on the cover of the book, that uh, the, the the dedication is to the just of Cabinda, who is the the Mufuka Andri Pukuta, uh, which is the name that the appears in the sources. Uh, referring to him and this is a gift then to thank him for saving their lives but also a gift that wants to uh, continue this relation um, this commercial relations uh, and perhaps preferential relations with um, this uh, minister of commerce that was the Mufuka then perhaps an invitation for that in the next voyages to the region that these captains would be favored with uh, good captives, uh, captives that were uh, healthy. And uh, then it's a, a gift uh, to say thanks and also to expect something in return after uh, then in the next uh, next voyages. Then it was created in La Rochelle, but then the, in the book I retrace who was the the then the the silversmith who created the the sword, and the, the sword the the format of the sword. Then the sword had several layers, but the format of the sword is inspired uh, then uh, from what uh, by local locally made swords in the the region of the the Luango coast then the great part of the book uh, is a discussion about uh, who created who are these uh, individuals who created who commissioned uh, then how it was made uh, who, uh, what uh, which elements on the sword uh, what do they refer to then this is part of the work that i did uh, with um by analyzing this uh, this sword yeah i think uh, you know for for listeners that are that are interested in learning more about you know the sword and the specificity of the journey i, I definitely highly recommend um checking out the book because it is it's very interesting the way in which you traced it and the sort of the the journey um that it took i i think for you in terms of studying this this sword was there anything that you found you know particularly surprising uh when you learned more about its journey i would say that the, the most fascinating element that i find um about this object is that we think in terms of objects and things that are uh, material uh, items in the atlantic slave trade or any other exchange we think them in terms of that they move, of course, they need people to move them, to create them. But uh, the element that I found interesting is that we are used as historians to look at the written archive to find evidence. And of course, this book is based on uh, research in the, 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 the archives that are traditional archives, written archives. But the, the element that I find um, fascinating here is that the object itself has all these layers uh, referring to the interactions that occurred among Africans and Europeans during the, the period that it was created and following uh, then, uh, including then the, the 19th century. Then the, 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 the object itself became a repository and has all these layers imprinted uh, on it. And usually we would think that objects are things that are static. And indeed, the, the silver objects already in Africa, there was already this tradition of um, 
amending silver objects or in Europe, there are entire collections that would be melted in periods of need in order to create other objects that were more fashionable. But here, this object remained as it was when it was created, but there were layers that were added at the same time while preserving the older the older layers. And I think that this is the, the fascinating element here to show how objects, they are alive and how much they can tell us about the history of these human atrocities, uh, which is the case of the Atlantic slave trade. I'm wondering also, you know, if there's other, uh, you know, findings that you had, because it, I, I think, and this is something that you, you talk about about in the book is, is, you know, with doing a micro history, focusing on something, um, something very specific, or, or, you know, focusing on a very specific region, a very specific period of time. Um, you know, for, for you as a historian, could you talk a little bit about just like the general value of doing something like a micro history, uh, especially for understanding a topic as large, as expansive as the Atlantic slave trade and European colonialism? Uh, thank you. This is a, an excellent question. I sometimes have a difficult time with the, the micro history uh, label uh, because it, it's micro from the point of view of the, um, I would say that we decide to take, to start from a micro um, point of view, but in this story of the Atlantic slave trade, there are so many social actors involved uh, and there are uh, people of different cultures uh, and also in terms of the, the time frame is so large. And here the time frame is large because we have the 18th century and then the, the sort of continues moving during the 19th century when we are going to have uh, European um, uh, conquest in uh, West Africa and West Central Africa, then the, the micro explodes to, to some extent at, uh, at some point. I think that what, uh, however, what this kind of approach allows us to do is uh, to not be lost with uh, within this very big context, but to use the micro to connect these different things, different times and um, spaces in a way that uh, follow only one thread. And of course here, even just by following this, uh, this thread, uh, we have so many other threads that could have been followed during the, uh, the writing of this book. And I think that this is the, 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 the advantage is that you can really focus on many different things, but using only one, uh, one example. I also think that the, the, perhaps the, how useful this, uh, this, this kind of approach can be. If you think in terms of our museums today, uh, here in the United States, the Smithsonian, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum, and different other private museums or museums uh, in Europe, in the Netherlands, Portugal, uh, the Britain, France, uh, there are so many objects in these museums. And when you go to these museums, you see uh, sometimes this uh, overwhelming number of objects being exposed. And we learn sometimes very little about uh, each of these individual objects. 
And I think that a story like this shows us that one single object can give us, can open up so many windows to understand uh, different societies uh, across different times. And uh, I believe that this is why perhaps is one of the, uh, the, the advantages of doing this kind, uh, this kind of history. Of course, not all objects have all this, um, that we, it's not possible to follow all objects in terms of uh, such an interesting history and such a documented history, because sometimes we have objects that we do not have uh, so much traces or documents about them. Uh, but um, I think that this, uh, this kind of research, I think that offers that possibility. And I hope that encourages more people uh, to do similar kinds of uh, works and especially to consider material culture as uh, uh, then a dimension that deserves to be part of uh, the work that uh, historians do. Because to this day, most of this work has been done, especially by archaeologists, sometimes by anthropologists and art historians. But historians, they are very, uh, they, they don't explore much material culture. And I think that they should do that. Yeah, I think uh, you know your your art history background uh, certainly you know helps bring that that level of perspective, you know even just to I, I think to to go into a, a museum exhibit, see a uh, an artifact, and ask these sorts of ask so many unending questions, and then that you end up uh, building an entire uh, you know historical narrative around this this single object. It's it's a it's really a uh, I, I think a an interesting. Uh, way that you know those looking for projects might think about how they can build their own historic history um, around an object, around uh, you know materials, and and really that that there's you know so many unending, expansive questions that you can ask around these things. Uh, well, Anna, thank you so much for being a guest of the New Books Network. The book is "The Gift: How Objects of Prestige Shaped the Atlantic Slave Trade, Colonialism." Thank you so much. Thank you, Khalid. Thank you for having me. Thank you.